I have a confession to make. I was judgmental and self-righteous after attending a chapel service at United Theological Seminary, where I am currently pursuing my Master of Divinity. You see, the seminary hired a new chaplain earlier this fall who has a different style from our previous chaplain. What was particularly troubling me was Chaplain Lee's use of the word Lord, both in the hymns he chose and in the closing benediction. He said, May the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us now and forever. Part of my reaction stemmed from my liberal upbringing in a United Church of Christ church. You see, back in the 80s, we had recently dedicated an inclusive language hymn, which replaced words like Lord and Father, and used more expansive words for God, like Creator, Mother and Father, the Great Mystery, the Holy. This was done to recognize that words like Father and Lord convey a hierarchical and monarchical relationship of authority and obedience and can be damaging to women. So imagine my surprise at hearing this word in a seminary that was started by the UCC Church and one that encourages its students to use inclusive language. But then suddenly I caught myself in this downward spiral of negative and critical thinking and remembered the wise advice of my spiritual director. She encourages me to take a posture of curiosity with me when an inclination to judge a situation overwhelms me. This allows me to slow down, have an open heart, before I categorize a situation as good or bad, the right language to use, the wrong language, the correct theology or the incorrect theology. Instead, I began asking myself these questions. What would it mean to call Jesus Lord? What do I believe about Jesus? Could there be a way for me, and perhaps some of you, to hear the word Lord in a church service, and keep an open mind and an open heart to those who find this term deeply moving and one that liberates. So here is what I know and believe in my heart about Jesus. In the earliest years of the last millennium, a man whose name was Jesus lived in Palestine, a territory under the rule of the Roman emperor. Jesus grew up in Nazareth a small town in Galilee. He was a devout Jew. Sometime in his late 20s or early 30s, after a ritual baptism, he became a teacher of wisdom, a prophet, calling for the radical justice and an urgent proclaimer of God's coming realm. By many accounts, he was able to heal people of their infirmities, both spiritual and physical. He gathered around him a group of devoted followers, some of whom traveled with him from place to place. After three years, he became a threat to the ruling religious and civil authorities. They tried him and executed him on a hill outside of Jerusalem. Days later, Jesus' tomb was discovered empty, and in the ensuing weeks, many of his followers experienced his presence in a way that broke through their old ideas about the divisions between life and death, 
body, and spirit. During this period, he gave them a mission, charging them to continue his proclamation of God's realm and to call other men and women to follow in the way of justice, love, and spirit. During Jesus's lifetime, it only began to dawn on his followers that there was something unique about him. But after his death, this dawning thundered over them like the new sun. And they lived, and they realized that in some way, Jesus had broken history open. That is, he had lived in a way that was so radically new, it shattered the conventional wisdom of his time. Everything that came after him was colored by his life. In those early years after Jesus' death, his followers, transformed by their experience with him, looked for ways to describe what had happened to him, to them, for ways to talk about Jesus that would convey the impact he had. They borrowed images and words from their own Jewish tradition, as well as Greco-Roman thought. They called him divine, son of God, God, God from God. His titles were also Lord, Redeemer, Liberator, and Savior of the world. Before Jesus ever existed, all of these words were used. All of these terms belonged to Caesar Augustus. In the tradition of Greek mythology, the emperor was assigned immortal and godlike traits to make him more powerful. To assign these traits to Jesus was to strip that power from Caesar. The early followers of Jesus were taking the identity of the first Roman emperor and giving it to a Jewish peasant. This was what the Romans called magistas and we call high treason. A poor, young, Jewish, itinerant preacher allowing himself to be called, or was called after his death, the Son of God, Savior, and Lord, was an act of radical, nonviolent resistance to Roman power. Then he commenced to empower the least powerful than those with legal power. I'm sorry. Then he commenced to empower the least powerful as greater than those with legal power. Back to my posture of curiosity. I made an appointment with Chaplain Lee to inquire about his use of the word Lord and what this word means to him. He began by explaining that his perspective and social location is that of a second-generation Chinese-American who grew up feeling like he didn't quite fit in to the larger narrative around him that assigned worth based on ethnicity. In the Hebrew Bible, Adonai is translated as Lord, and for Chaplain Lee, it means humbling oneself to a force larger than oneself. As a person of color who has been marginalized and oppressed, the term Lord can be used as a subversion against the dominant cultural narratives, the lords that lift up, that enslave all of our lives, like consumerism, ecological degradation, racism, classism, sexism. Chaplain Lee explained, for me, the use of the word Lord is radical. I give my allegiance to a force that is calling me out of the dominant narrative, a force that has made me, 
Saying it and using it gives me a sense of empowerment and surrender. This is who I am meant to be, and I am shaped by the Creator. Chaplain Lee also made it clear that his worth and dignity does not come at the expense of someone else's. He is not free until we are all free. Chaplain Lee suggested I read the book by Miguel de la Torre entitled Reading the Bible from the Margins. This book illustrates one perspective for how people on the margins view the divinity and lordship of Jesus Christ. De La Torre, writing from the Christian perspective, explains, Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of God to humanity. Not only do we mere humans learn the character of God through Christ, God learns what it means to suffer under oppression. Because the ultimate deity has flesh wounds on its side, hands, and feet, God understands the pain and suffering of all those who face persecution. To read the Bible cognizant that Jesus Christ suffered marginality is to rebel against the assumption of the Euro-American church, that the task of all Bible readers is to discover the one single interpretation of the text, which by definition becomes the interpretation of the dominant culture. To read the Bible from the margins debunks these interpretations and unmasks how they have been used historically to justify the power and privilege of the few at the expense of the many. While the dominant culture may debate the existence of God, people on the margins attempt to ascertain the character of God. I'm going to repeat this last statement because I find it incredibly illuminating. While the dominant culture may debate the existence of God, people on the margins attempt to ascertain the character of God. Perhaps Della Torre is suggesting that when you come from a place of privilege, it is easy to dismiss the existence of God or the Lordship of Jesus because the other lords, like consumerism, the dominant culture, in fact, already lift us up. For me, as a person of privilege, I can easily question the need for surrendering to God or Jesus when I live a pleasant and mostly and an economically secure life uplifted by white privilege. What do I need to surrender to exactly? Do I need a God who understands my trials and tribulations and in, who is siding with me against the oppressor if I am in some ways the oppressor? It was easy for me to sit in chapel and simply discard the words I didn't want to hear. So here is my charge to myself, my colleagues, and each of you. Firstly, we can take an open heart and an open mind and a posture of curiosity with us when we attend a church service, a small group discussion, or a Black Lives Matter event that might ruffle a theological feather or two. Here at First Universalist, we have been bringing in new and diverse musical guests and pulpit guests who are using a broader array of theological language. We can be hospitable guests, learning and growing from these experiences. My hope is that we will all risk something and open ourselves up to being vulnerable, 
but not simply in the service of tolerance, but to be transformed by the experience. Our denomination is changing. We are broadening our identity. For example, we are attracting congregants who have been raised with no religious background. Catholic, evangelical, mainline Protestant, and black Christian denominations. I hope we can engage each other with curiosity and an open heart. Secondly, as Delatore eloquently explains, we have a larger, more systemic task, both for those who are oppressed and those who are privileged by the present institutionalized structures. We need not reverse roles or share the role of privileged at the expense of some other group, but rather to dismantle the very structures responsible for causing injustice along race, class, gender, and sexual orientation lines, regardless of the attitudes bound to those structures. Only then can all of humanity achieve, only then can all within society achieve their full humanity and become able to live the abundant life offered by the radical teachings of Jesus. Jesus taught in parables and subverted conventional ways of seeing and living and invited us into an alternative way of life, so beautifully illustrated in Hortense's poem. Jesus walks unarmed into the arms of those forgotten, forsaken, berated, incarcerated. He's hanging out with the outcast, the marginalized, the ostracized, the underclass, the homeless. He is the Holy Spirit of our times. For me, to, see, to call Jesus Lord would be to see this as primary, to put God at the center instead of my own ego, my comfort, or the pursuit of the perfection of my own children. The racial justice work we are doing at First Universalist and the training I have attended is calling me out, in the words of Chaplain Lee, to surrender to the weight of my own participation in the systems of racism in our society. Our racial justice trainer calls on Euro-Americans to wake up, catch up, and show up to the work of racial justice. After 40 hours of training, three Black Lives Matter vigils, protests, and marches, my heart is turning. I am starting to catch up and show up. I want to live my Unitarian Universalist values that call me to love and justice and to respect the inherent worth and dignity of every human being. I want to follow in the ways of Jesus. I'll leave you with one more provoking thought from Delatore. We need to crucify and nail our privilege to the cross so as to become nothing. Jesus became nothing so as to redeem the world. Ethical life begins with our surrender, with our self-negation. Those who benefit from the power and privilege of social structures can only encounter the absolute through crucifying their own power and privilege. May it be so, and amen. <laughs>